Welcome back to School of Calisthenics, another playground session with Tim and Jacko, and this week we had the great Brett Bartholomew join us for a conversation. Yeah, what an awesome guy and an awesome um, strength and conditioning coach. We get into talking about some specific strength mechanisms um, for beginners particularly, uh, but he's also massive into interpersonal skills and communication, and that's valuable for anybody, anybody at all, as long as you're talking to other people in life, um, that is going to be valuable to you. So Brett really dives into some detail around that and we just wanted to flag it because he's got an offer on uh, through his website, The Art of Coaching, which is a time-limited online course for people that are wanting to improve their communication into personal skills. And there's a lot of stuff in this, we don't want to miss out, so if you're interested in that, just listen up for it. We get into it in the podcast, but for now, sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to the School of Calisthenics podcast. It's Tim and Jacka, and we have a great guest for you um, today. Really excited about this one, Brett Bartholomew. Um, he presented at the UKCA conference where we met him um, uh, the last month or month or August. so ago. Oh, yeah. um, fascinating um, S&C coach, but looking a lot about helping improve coaches and improve their communication skills. And um, we're really excited to get stuck into some... Um, some exciting stuff for you guys and some real good take-home messages for you out there that are, are coaching and actually wanting to improve yourself, whether that's actually as a, as a coach directly or some of your communication skills around that. Um, and also, Brett is obviously a strength conditioning coach, so he knows an awful lot about strength and worked with some, um, a lot of good athletes. So, um, Brett, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolute pleasure. We uh, just Brett, for those, I'm sure um, everyone out there listening to the podcast knows obviously exactly who you are, and they follow you on Instagram <laughs> and, and Twitter. But for for the one guy or girl out there that doesn't uh, hasn't heard of you yet, just give a bit of a, a background of of how you got into um, S and C and and some of the work you've done over the last few years. Sure. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I'm going into my 12th year, or I'm in my 12th year as a strength coach. Um, you know, I, I got into it. The, the reason I got into it is fairly long winded and, and one that I wrote about fairly extensively in my book, conscious coaching, but the reader's digest version is, you know, grew up, was a competitive athlete. And, uh, you know, I, when I was about 14, 15 years old, parents got a divorce. Uh, a lot of the kids that I grew up playing sports with and that were in my predominant social circle, turned to pretty serious drug use. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, it's interesting. It wasn't just, you know, drinking marijuana, you know, a lot of them started getting into cocaine, different things like that, which very quickly, you know, made me realize that I needed to take, you know, a different route. That wasn't the path I wanted to go. And so, yeah. you know, my obsession quickly became training, nutrition, anything I could do to enhance, you know, my, my own sports performance. But the problem is, is at 14 or 15, you know, you don't really know what's good information and what's bad. So I followed the advice of the countless fitness magazines that were out of time. And, you know, like any good extremist, as most many of us are, <laughs> can be sometimes in the performance community, I followed every bad piece of advice there was. You know, I ate low carb, I ate low fat, I worked out three times a day. I mean, a lot of that was uh, an emotional escape too, um, you know, just because you didn't want to be home when your parents were fighting. You know, now instead of hanging out with your friends after school, you're training you know, at night I'd train again, just everything became so single track focused. Well, I ended up exercising and training myself right into an eating disorder hospital. Um, and I was admitted there because one day I was running around the track and I blacked out and I was taking the doctor and he said that basically, uh, my heart, kidneys and liver were all failing because my body was in such a catabolic state. 
And in Eating Disorder Hospital, uh, one in particular was the only place that they felt could get enough weight back on me um, to kind of reverse some of those health issues and malnutrition. And, and it, was, it was tough at the time because here I am at, you know, 15 years old and, you know, I have no problem eating food. The problem was is I wasn't eating enough and I was being too restrictive because, of course, I was eating like bodybuilders would instead of, you know, performance. And, and there was, I didn't have a strength coach growing up. I didn't have a dietitian. Like our team didn't have those things. That information wasn't readily available, you know, at that time. And it wasn't certainly like at the peak it is today where you hear about eight-year-olds going to these tremendous facilities and, you know, putting together long-term athletic development plans. I mean, a lot of us just grew up and lifted weights and did whatever we could. So I spent a year of my life in this hospital. Um, it was pretty dire circumstances. For the first two weeks, I couldn't, couldn't shower. Uh, they thought the initial shock of hot or cold would send me into immediate cardiac arrest. Um, it was a pretty interesting circumstance because you're, there's no exercise. I mean, even to the point where you cannot stand, you can't chew gum, you can't fidget. You're monitored every day by nurses and doctors. Um, really, really extreme uh, situation, which again, I, I detail in the book. So I'll spare your listeners the long-winded explanation. But eventually, you know, I got to a point where I'd gained enough weight where they, they let us go out of the hospital for a day because otherwise you're just kind of locked into the eighth floor. And I picked up two books. Um, I picked up uh, Boyd Epley's Complete Conditioning for Football, Boyd Epley and Mike Arthur. And then I picked up a sports nutrition guidebook. Um, now, I had to steal those books. Uh, well, I bought, I bought the books, but I had to put them in the book covers of different books. Because when you go into the hospital, um, they, they wouldn't let you bring anything in that was diet or training related. Because it would send you know mixed messages to people that were in there that had body dysmorphia or or food related issues. And, you know, they didn't, it was almost like a prison. They'd confiscate anything that dealt with those subjects. And I remember, you know, I was just, I wanted to get out of that hospital. The place wasn't working for me. It was just, it, was, it literally felt like a prison. And so I studied everything I could in those books. Um, and I was released eventually after I gained a certain percentage of my weight uh, or what they considered my ideal body weight. And after reading everything I could within three months of training right, learning how to eat right, I put on 56 pounds, you know, and, and never looked back. I know I should wow. probably do the kilo conversion, you know, but well over 20 yeah, kilos um, and, and, you know, uh, never looked back. And so there were a couple of things that were evident there. One, I was amazed at the human body and the resilience. Um, you know, I was able to kind of reverse. I still have some liver issues today. Um, just because of the extreme breakdown of, of everything that occurred, but everything else is, is pretty much back to baseline. Um, but I was, I was amazed at the human body and how, how it could not only repair itself, but just do such phenomenal things and be so resilient. But I also wanted to study communication because, and here's a key point. When you were in that hospital, you had people that were from all different backgrounds. We had a junior Olympic wrestler who was beaten by his father after losing a match. And, um, you know, like he, he turned to a, a obsessive kind of training regimen because, you know, he was always fearful of letting his father down. Um, you had a woman in her mid sixties whose husband had left her. So she turned to, to food and exercise as a way to kind of, you know, manage her self-esteem and, and insecurity. You had a child in there that was the middle of nine children and, you know, they use their kind of uh, sickness or disease as a way to continue to get attention. But here's the thing, you know, not one of them was actually really scared of food or had a true like 
food-centered issue. It was all a manifestation of other things in their life. But despite that, the nurses and the doctors treated everybody almost entirely the same. You know, every time I'd go in there and I'd try to talk to them about, you know, how exercise was a way for me to kind of escape, you know, my friends and the drug stuff and stuff going on at home. You know, they didn't want to hear it. They were very quick to put people in a bucket. And, you know, in my presentation, I talk about it like that's, that's the curse of knowledge is people become very socially skewed instead of socially skilled. And what we know about bias and all these things now is, is typically the most knowledgeable folks are, are the ones most guilty of doing this. So point being, when I got out of that hospital, I knew I wanted to learn about social dynamics because it was just the, the treatment there was awful. They didn't know how to connect. Their knowledge was wasted. I had a nurse in her, you know, nearly 50 years old tell me the day I left the hospital, instead of saying she was happy for me, she told me that I'd be back and she was sure of it. This is a 50 year old woman talking to a 14 year old or a 15 year old kid like that. And so communication, human behavior, understanding psychology and training and nutrition were an early, early obsession of mine. After this experience, um, I went on to Kansas State University to get my degree in kinesiology. Um, and then I got my master's degree at Southern Illinois Carbondale with an emphasis in motor learning, um, specifically attentional focus. So I was writing and, and doing research on attentional focus in, in about 2009 under the guise of uh, guidance of Jared Porter, who's well-respected in kind of that field, and um, Gabrielle Wolf. And the, the focus was really on you know, internal and external cueing, which was interesting. And I'm not, you know, I won't belabor it here, but essentially how what we say matters and can impact performance, but it made me want to dive even more deeply. It made me want to look at all the things that can influence human behavior and human nature, because I think we all get to a point, correct me if I'm wrong, where, you know, we work with athletes, we prescribe sets, reps, loads, everything like that. But then you realize that ultimately it comes down to whether that athlete cares enough to apply themselves against that load, apply themselves in the training environment, their level of engagement, their level of attention. I mean, just because the number is written on the program doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden we're going to get the adaptation. That athlete has to go under there with purpose and a willingness to strain. And, you know, that's, that's inherent for us as coaches, but how many of us work with athletes that really like to train, right? And so uh, I wanted to dive more deeply. I wanted to say, all right, for me to get every ounce out of my program, I have to get every ounce out of that person and traditional motivation and all that kind of stuff never really clicked with me. I don't believe that the world is this warm, touchy, feely, sing spongy place. There are athletes that come from tough backgrounds. And if you don't know how to connect with them, you're not going to learn how to get the best out of them. So yeah, uh, after grad school, I started working with professional athletes, military, also worked with high school kids, um, youth. I've, I've worked with the whole gamut. Basically, anytime somebody didn't want to do or coach a group, um, I would say yes, because I wanted as much experience as I could. And now, you know, long story short, I now live in Atlanta, Georgia, still working predominantly with professional athletes, mainly NFL, combat sports, um, baseball, military. And then I also travel and through my, um, my company, The Art of Coaching, I do a lot of guidance, workshops, mentoring, and then also consulting with professional and collegiate sports teams. Amazing. That uh, cacophony, I think, is that the right word? Or the symphony of those things that are that shapes your career from such a young age is, is incredible. And when, you, when you're talking about your experiences and what that led you towards, I, I couldn't think of a better combination um, 
or of skills for someone to go into a strength and conditioning and coaching career where you're going to really get uh, get results. And I think you're dead right. There's some stuff that you said in there, the athletes I've coached over the years that you can write the best program in the book, but if that athlete doesn't want to do that program, it's it's irrelevant. And if you can't get them to understand it and buy into you as a practitioner and, and you can't communicate the value of that to them in, in a way which is of value to them, um, then it's a really, well, it's, it's just you're never really going to maximize that opportunity. One of the things I did at, at yeah, university and I had sort of lots of different sports teams, 12 different squads that I was looking after and it would be netball, then hockey, then football, then rugby. And the one thing I loved about it from as a, as a junior strength and condition coach was for each one of those squads, you had to put a different hat on. So from one hour to the next, you would change how you communicated to get that group to buy in. So you can't, you can't train a rugby squad like you train a netball squad. It's a completely different communication strategy. And when you get that right as a coach, I think it's one of the most rewarding things that you can do. It's not about whether you write the perfect program, it's whether you can actually get guys to enjoy training and therefore get adaptation um, and improve their sports performance. So it's an yeah, incredible story. Yeah, and you, I think, uh, Brett, you talk so uh, passionately about what you're, what you're doing now. And like we saw you present at the UKCA uh, like firsthand and clearly like hearing that, your, your full background to that, like it's, it comes from such a powerful place. Um, and, it, and, you know, one of the things that we talk about at the scorecast Senex is redefining your impossible. And often these, these powerful things come out of like those tough times, like for, you know, it's almost feels like it's, 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 it's so strong and powerful because it's come from such a difficult, um, starting point or that's where it was bred but um yeah, no. yeah i mean it, it has to you know yeah. like talent needs trauma and i think that's something that we inherently shield you know people from these days for some reason it's like you know we don't we don't want them to experience the ugly until they're quote-unquote ready you know i i'm a big believer in that you know immersion to you know, like one of the laws of, of human nature right like you've got to immerse yourself in in reality as quick as you can because it's all chess, not checkers. And it's something that unfortunately a lot of young coaches, I don't think. And then when, by the way, when I, for the sake of this podcast and, and just consistency and communication, when I say young or old, I'm not referring to age. You know, I think that there's 55 year old coaches out there that have maybe been in the game a long time, but you know, had very limited experiences. And that doesn't mean they're bad coaches at all, but you know, there are people that have to understand that, you know, they may only be, experts in one domain and then there's young coaches out there that have only been in it you know maybe eight to ten years and they've they've had a wide range mm. of experiences and maybe they juggle multiple hats and you know like it, it, it's not that one path is better or worse but we've got to take them both you know at, at face value um there's also coaches that you know maybe up there in age but haven't coached all that much and they got into the game late and then there's young coaches that have been doing it you know, on a grinding type eight group a day kind of facility for a long time. And so but what, what I mean is I think coaches that are, you know, kind of more inexperienced or been in very special circumstances, you know, they hear this and they think like, man, I don't like that because it's sexier to talk about periodization strategies. And it's sexier to talk about, you know, everything else. But that's only because one, usually they haven't, they haven't realized that the majority of the things that they realize that, that you know, people bring up the fancier terms or the fancier variations of these things aren't practical. They're nice to read about, but you know, and I, I, I can, I can relate because I love program design. I love periodization, but 
I got to a point where I was reading all these texts or going to these presentations and then half of it just wasn't practical. You know, even when dealing with NFL athletes, you'd have guys that like still needed refinement and the basic patterns or weren't as strong as they needed to be. And so, you know, why am I doing accentuated eccentric squats with weight releasers? You know what I mean? Like Mm, who, how many of us really have guys that, you know, are using super advanced protocols that aren't weightlifters. And and that's nothing against that topic. That's just what came off the dome. But, you know, eventually you'll get to a point and I got to it when I started working with groups of, you know, 30 millionaires that didn't have to listen to me, right? They were choosing to come to me in the off season. They're paying me for a service. And like, I've got to find a way to get them to do things they don't want to do, you know, because by paying me, they think they run the show. They're already in the NFL, you know, so telling them, hey, if you get stronger, you'll run faster. Well, the guy already runs a 4340. <laughs> That's not going to motivate him. So, you know, I, I think the reason a lot of people don't take to the art of coaching early enough is they haven't had that kind of experience yet. They're in environments where athletes have to do what they're told, or because the art of coaching, and I say this in my course over and over again, has been oversimplified. People think the art of coaching and buying in is like, Hey man, I trust you, or I really care about you, or, you know, building trust and building relationships and communication and, and understanding the learning process is far more intricate than that, you know, and it's like buy-in and trust are synonymous. You don't get buy-in and you don't passively receive it. You know, you letting your athletes know you care about them doesn't award you trust. Mm. You build it through listening, learning, caring, being patient, working on communicating, it's the connective tissue buy-in is the connective tissue of coaching and it's recognized all around the world, right? Like everybody uses the term buy-in, but very few are taught what, what it's comprised of. And that's really my mission going forward. I absolutely love that analogy of the fascial system there. Brett, that is just made my day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. No, I I, I really think it's true though. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent agree. So Brett, we're just going to switch up a little bit. I want to pull, yep. pull back to some of the stuff. So um, pick on, on your experience as a strength and conditioning coach. We're going to come back to some of the stuff around coaching and the art of coaching and communication in a little while. Um, but I just want to grab um, some knowledge from you around um, your experience of working with a range of different athletes. So we have a lot of um, a lot of beginners engage with us in, in calisthenics and they're learning the basics of bodyweight training. Um, I'm just interested a couple of things of, of how, um, how you've experienced and used bodyweight training with athletes in the past, um, where it kind of fits into your programs. Um, and if you've sort of played around yourself or with athletes with calisthenics as a broader term, and we can define that as bodyweight training. And, and I guess the, the cal- if it becomes calisthenics when you're looking to do more showing off, um, <laughs> it's a little bit like it, but, um, yeah, just any experience that you've got so far and then I really want to get into a little bit around helping people to get some takeaway messages and how they can build some strength and some basic movements yeah I mean I I think to address what you first said of of course you know I use them in my programming and I have with athletes at every age and every level I mean calisthenics I think people probably put them in a box too much and they think that they're only appropriate for you know beginners or this or you know what have you I mean I have elements of them in every warm-up that I do you know they're so in that way they're they're an, an immediate bridge that, that connects, you know, the, the bigger session and everything else that we're going to do. But I, I, you know, when, especially when I work in the collegiate environment or even with youth and high school kids, I mean, that's, that's the essence. That's where we start. And my background is motor learning. And so of course we've got to learn 
how to control our own body and, and, and adapt to the environment and different constraints and, and, and modify and regulate tension and create tension with our own body weight before we can ever hope to do that effectively and efficiently with, with external load. And so uh, whether it's in warmups, whether it's isometric hold variations as part of a program, whether that's ballistic variations and jumps, whether it's patterning, um, you know, and warm-up sets, anything like that, you know, I'd say that they're ubiquitous in most programs. And even if somebody was a staunch, you know, you know how it is in this field, like somebody's always anti-something, even if somebody was anti-calisthenics, which to me would be silly because, you know, just day-to-day maneuvering around is calisthenic in nature. <laughs> but um, if somebody was anti-calisthenics, like, uh, you know, I, I'd say if they went back and looked at their programs, they, they'd find that they're actually represented nearly, you know, everywhere in their program in some fashion, whether whether the training or the warm up. So, yeah, I, I think they play a critical role at, for athletes at all levels. Do you tend to scale those sorts of things when you're working with players like you've got NFL players coming to you? Um, do you do you tend to sort of scale bodyweight calisthenics exercises for those guys that have obviously built a lot of strength over the years and, and continue to challenge them in, in that way of, of understanding how to move their own body weight more effectively <coughs> rather than just sort of, or, or is it a matter of once you get them to a point that, that the priority becomes on shifting sort of more external loads through whether that be maximal strength training, power training or whatever, more sort of like, not, let's not say traditional, but more sort of standard routes of, of strength development? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's so much a matter of of novice or elite athlete or level of athlete because I've had elite athletes that are novice trainees. I've worked with world champion fighters that have never touched a weight because they thought it was going to get them bulky. I've worked with NFL players who routinely brag about having not lifted over 100 kilograms for their entire NFL career, <laughs> you know, but yet they still got by with it. And so you know, I, I don't really think the level of athlete has to do with it so much as their training age, you know, and their level of, com- you know, like how competent they are within the weight room environment, you know, and, and, and the training they've had prior. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you this, when the NFL season ends and I get guys coming back to me in early February or what have you, even though the Super Bowl is not till February, a lot of teams, you know, guys will start training with their teams got kicked out of the playoffs or what have you. You know, we go right into things like split squat iso holds, three position push up iso holds, um, pull up eccentrics, pull up isometric holds, things like that to to kind of recreate that foundation yeah. of of neural development and everything else. So, uh, you know, I, I I don't ever think anything in training and coaching is black and white. I think that everything is a, a necessary alchemy, or to use your term earlier. Uh, symphony. And I think it's just about knowing when to have different parts of the orchestra play at a certain time and how to make them do so in harmony. Yeah. yeah. So one of the questions that we get a lot from our beginners around that strength development is um, around sort of one of our foundation movements in calisthenics being a pull-up. And a lot of things are going to stem from that, whether that becomes a muscle-up or a human flag. A lot of times people can't can't seem to get that first pull-up. Um, have you got any sort of takeaway tips that you would give or how you would program that for somebody if it became part of a program? How do you people doing and uh, sort of mastering the pull-ups so going from like zero through to maybe we doing five to ten pull-ups well zero to ten is a big jump you know yep. but <laughs> to go from zero to one you know let's talk about zero to one first i mean a lot of times i feel like people you know they, they typically don't don't realize the strength they have and what i find strength is a skill i mean it is a neuromuscular quality to generate force and and so, uh, like, I'm a big fan of, of pull-up iso holds and eccentrics and things like that um, to really help them understand concepts of tension 
you know, and co-contraction, you know, like you all have people that will still try to do pull-ups or any of their derivations and, and primarily use the biceps, you know, like mm-hmm. they don't understand how to create tension in their lap. They don't understand that their trunk musculature has to fire as well. I mean, if you, you know how it is. If you do a well, if you're doing a true isometric hold, everything on that body is, is locked in, right? Your radiation mm-hmm. is at, in full effect. And so um, I'm a big believer in, in ISO. Like if we're doing them two days, one, they've got to do it multiple days a week, um, two to three days a week, two to three days a week minimum. And a combination of, of ISO holds, whether that's, uh, I love three position ISO holds. So it could be, you know, as little as five seconds at the top, five seconds mid range, five seconds at the bottom, you know, building up to 15 or 20 seconds over time in each position. Um, and then another day I'll be really aggressive on eccentrics, you know, whether that's the three to they'll jump up or I'll help them up three to five second eccentric, really fighting on the way down. Um, and then I'll follow that with some assisted reps, you know, cause they do have to practice like the motion and of itself. So from a motor learning standpoint, I really think of the concepts of them. They got to learn how to generate tension. They've got to, they, they've got to understand the, the force development qualities of it and, and what's required, but they've also got to practice and refining the movement as well. Um, and, and I think you can't go wrong with a good ISO assisted and eccentric progression. Perfect. Some great stuff there for uh, people to get started. And I think it's their hard positions, right, as well, when you start getting into those, like getting people to go through those eccentrics with control. And another thing that we talk a lot around is just building the foundations, that movement of having good active hang strength um, and being able to control the sort of a scapular movement as you go through, whether they, they don't need to necessarily understand the technical terms, but understanding where the shoulder position is. And, and, and like I say, we've done, I've done, we do quite a lot of work in swimming. And um, taking the guys back from fairly poorly performed pull-ups where they might be able to pull out 10 to go, right, actually, now we're going to put you into a real strict form where you're connecting that whole chain together so it looks like a beautifully performed movement. They drop from 10 down to sort of maybe three and they don't understand why. You're like, okay, well, now we're actually starting to to really clean that up and, and put much more demand on the system because you're controlling multiple joints at the same time to create a really nice position and that's where for us the the transition through to muscle ups comes through we need to be able to control these nice body positions so that we can then do something with that force rather than allowing sloppy form and then effectively creating energy leaks all the way through the chain when, when we need that that's that tension to stay to stay part of the, the movement well yeah i mean and even to your you know a point that you mentioned earlier you know there's athletes that I'll, I'll have guys that can do pull-ups with a, a, a tremendous amount of external load, you know, whether it's uh, two twenty kilo plates added on or what have you. But if like if they haven't done isometric holds or eccentrics in a long time, like having them go through that again is harder for them than pulling all that load, mm. you know. And so I think that's something that people miss too is if your athletes haven't done eccentric or isometric variations in a long time, bringing those back into the fold even for a very, very strong athlete is tremendously challenging because it's a completely different kind of stimulus, you know, from a time under tension standpoint, the type of tension, everything. And so all of guys that are like, dude, I don't get it. How can I do a pull up with so much weight yet? I'm sweating like crazy doing a three position ISO hold for 10 seconds in each position. <laughs> and you look at them and you're like, Hey man, like that's, that's the beautiful thing about the human body. You throw a curveball at it and it's got to adapt in the way it does. You may not like it first. Mm, yeah definitely yeah we're talking there of, of of like the pull-up specifically but we can take those those isometric eccentric and and the concentric principles like touching base on all three of them like you say we can take that principle into some of the more 
demanding stuff that we might be trying to to use uh, and build strength for in calisthenics. And some of the some of the movements in calisthenics are specifically um, like static positions. So we might be trying to hold a lever or hold a human flag. Um, but like you say, there's value in hitting all three of those uh, and being able to take those principles around that you can then use to get yep. strong for 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 any of those. So there's there's some really good take home. Uh, messages for people that they can literally go if they're going to go down train tomorrow or later on today after they've listened to the podcast they can actually go in and put those into the program and we like to try and challenge people a little challenge them might be the right or wrong word but challenge people to think about their training to think about why are they doing what they're doing um and actually um understanding that as you mentioned, you get you get what you train for. So if someone hasn't actually done those isometrics in a while, they're then starting to find it hard because they've, they've, they're getting their specific adaptation for what they've previously been doing. And we like to try and encourage people to go, "What are your what are your training goals?" And then, "Why what is are you programming for?" You know, if you're writing your own session and deciding what you're going to do in your session, uh, is it specific enough to get the outcome? Um, that you're actually after rather than just doing something because you've always done it or someone else is someone else in the gym was doing it and they got strong doing it like that. Like what, what are you actually after? Yep, exactly. Um, so let's, uh, there's a couple of things we wanted to touch on, um, Brett around, um, the communication because it's a really important, um, part of the industry. And I, I, I start when, when we just had a quick chat before we started the podcast, I wanted to just tell you a bit of a story that, um, about six months or so before you launched, conscious coaching your um your book um i tried to run a course for sports coaches on communication skills so I would, through my master's program i'd work with a guy who was uh, doing a lot of around communication skills with business people and i thought it'd be amazing to get this guy in a room put some sports coaches in there from various different sports and let's talk communication so that we can improve our um our ability to to, to maximize adaptation and engagement and, and rapport with athletes and really start to up people's games on what what, what typically kind of would have been define as the soft skills of, of coaching, I suppose. Um, and that's probably a discussion for itself around that terminology. But the really interesting thing was, despite going to performance directors that I knew in the network, to, to lots of different sports coaches from different different areas, um, I ended up having to cancel the course because I literally couldn't get enough people who were willing to come and spend a few hours learning about it. And it wasn't a massively expensive program and then six months later or so you you launched um, the book and I was like thankfully somebody's put some conversation out into this space around this because it was just something which wasn't assumed and there's a, or wasn't um possessed by a lot of coaches and what, what I think a lot of coaches are um the, the ego side of it is they think that that communication is a given they're a coach therefore they can communicate and my experience is from watching a lot of different coaches over the years and reflecting on my own practice that that isn't an assumed and it takes a lot of practice and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of awareness of, of emotional intelligence around the people that you're you're working with yeah, like brett said before like that people almost think that that side of things is the easy bit like yeah oh, i can do that like what the hard bit is the the science of actually like the coaching side not that so the, the training side. Yeah, yeah. So you've obviously talked a lot around um, before about how you got to the point of being interested in, in communication. Just tell us a bit around the principles and the, the context of conscious coaching because you, you've got the the one thing that's really interesting, I think, that you've defined the 16 archetypes of, of different athletes that you might come in contact with and, and those and therefore the strategies that you're going to use. It'd be really interesting to just hear you talk a bit more about that philosophy and, and how people can really um, optimize um, becoming better at communication. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as you guys know, I mean, you, you saw the lecture at the UKSCA. It's 
you know, this, this is a topic that's pretty deep. So I'm probably not going to do the listeners justice, which is a big reason why I wrote the book and, and did the online course and everything. Um, I mean, just on the archetypes in general, you know, there's well over, you know, 55 pages in the book. There's an entire hour and a half module on my course. And then there's a whole 90 minute presentation. But the gist of it is that, you know, human beings go to great lengths to manage the self image that they want others to see. And that's, that's not an opinion that, you know, that was, that was really discussed by, by Goffman in 1955 in his books. He's got a tremendous book uh, called, I believe it's like managing self or the, uh, the management of oneself. I'll look at the exact title. I have it on my bookshelf. Um, but it's just a, tr- a phenomenal book that goes into aspects of human nature. Oh, sorry. Presentation of self in everyday life. That's what it is. So mm-hmm. it just goes into the idea that, you know, from the clothes that we choose to wear when we go outside, um, you know, to the car you drive, to the cologne or perfume you wear or, or anything like that, you know, you're, you're, you're making a statement, right? And, and same thing in the way in which you communicate with others. And so what, what's interesting is when you look at archetypes, an archetype is just, you know, a mold or a typical example of a, a certain kind of behavior, right? And you see it in movies. This is probably the easiest and quickest way for your audience to understand it is, you know, there's the villain archetype, there's the hero. Um, there's certain movies where somebody's always kind of the lovable loser. Somebody's, you know, this guy. Well, you see that in, in social media as well. The person that, you know, wants to post selfies, the person that's always got political rants, the person that's always posting about food or, you know, it's just, so we, we see archetypes in everyday life. It's not an arguable construct, right? It's, it's fairly indelible. And, um, so you, you'll see these presentations and in, in personalities and athletes you work with as well. So some of the archetypes, just to mention a few discussed in the course, you know, there's the Royal and the Royal is an individual or an athlete that typically is very talented been lauded by coaches and their peers for some time, you know, tends to have an air of superiority about themselves. And, and because of that, it's a bit harder to reach because they think they've got it figured out. Um, you know, then there's the Wolverine and the Wolverine is somebody that's a little bit more socially withdrawn. Um, I purposely use the term irascible uh, in one of my talks because they can seem like they're kind of this contentious, aggressive persona, but really, you know, this is somebody that's usually been through quite a bit in their life. Um, you know, they, they kind of know what, what they're looking for. They kind of have this rogue persona about them though. And coaches will typically approach them pretty aggressively because they think they're not bought in or they think they're not a team player, but really that's just kind of this person's state, right? That's their homeostasis. They're not easy to trust. I mean, they're not, um, they're not quick to trust others. Uh, you know, a, a classic Wolverine that I worked with saw, you know, one of his parents killed, grew up in a very hard upbringing you know, and so he wasn't going to come in the weight room and be some rah, rah, you know, guy doing jumping jacks at six in the morning. He'd show up. He always kind of had a per, like a constant scowl on his face, but was one of the best kids I had ever worked with. You just got to get on their level. Um, you have the skeptic, somebody that's always going to challenge you. Somebody that's always going to like, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that, but so-and-so did this. And, you know, um, you have the manipulator. I don't think that needs much context behind it. <laughs> somebody that usually will... You know, like uh, there's there's a great deal of athletes that are very Machiavellian and 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 charismatic, but really manipulative uh, in the back end. You know, and so you have a variety of personas. And in the book, you know, I cover how to identify them. You know, how to interact with them, mistakes to avoid, things like that. And then in the course, we even go a lot deeper on artofcoaching.com. 
we provide a full printout guide, you know, because the book is a lot to digest. And, and thankfully, it's something that people are like, hey, I go back to this constantly. And, and that means a great deal to me. Because when I wrote that book, there were two publishers that not only told me no, they just said, there's no market for this. And especially not within the performance community, you know, and so I self publish it. And what was funny about it is it's the number one thing people say they go back to. They're like, mm-hmm. I always go back to the archetypes. Um, and now, like I said, we've created a guide that, that is a printable PDF with a course that, you know, you'll, I'll go to different teams, whether it's university or professional, and they've got it posted up in their office. You know, they've got it posted up so their staff, you know, has, has an awareness of the kind of personality quirks they may deal with on the floor. And I make it a point in the book, like, listen, nobody has ever one archetype. Um, and, and solely one archetype. Everybody's shades of gray. It always depends the situation you're in. When I'm coaching, I'm very charismatic. I'm very, I love being around people. But in my day-to-day life, I'm kind of the Wolverine. You know, I'm just kind of low-key. You know, I generally distrust uh, quite a few people just because I get some, you know, I've had some interesting folks in my life and, and, and been through some stuff. Um, I'm somebody that, you know, there's a lot of people that use ingratiation out there in the world that will smile on your face and kind of, you know, spit at your back. And I, and I've seen that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that, you know, you've kind of got to show me through consistent behavior and reciprocity that, that, you know, you're in this relationship for the right reasons. But when I'm on the floor and I'm coaching, I'm very warm and, and, and empathetic. And, you know, I want to build that trust easily. So my point is, is, you know, I had one coach that asked, Hey, you know, like, can you just tell me how to coach this archetype? And I'm like, no, like, because, what country are they from? You know, what sport do they play? What's their upbringing? Like these people are not in, and this is the trick, right? If I say anything of worth on this podcast, it's this. People are trying to treat the science and the art of coaching the same way they do training. Meaning, you know, people will create checklists with training and be like, okay, I've worked on ankle mobility. I've worked on hip mobility. I've worked on this. Like they have this checklist manifesto. You can't do that with people. And that's what makes the art of coaching so hard you may work with one archetype in one setting and then work with an athlete from a completely different country that seems like he presents as such, but isn't going to interact the same way to your interventions, Right. And so you've got to learn. And and I cover this in the book as well. Like what are strategies to building trust? Because again, trust is synonymous with buy-in. What are things most coaches do wrong? You mentioned the term that I think is the number one thing people miss when trying to do this self-awareness most Mm -hmm. coaches are hopelessly hopelessly you know unaware in regards to you know they're like they think they know themselves oh i do this to make a difference or i do this because of this like most people do not know at the finest and most nitty uncomfortable insecure detail about why they do the things they do and i have a whole chapter on that too called it goes through the three stages of internal identification. It's just like, listen, you've got to be aware of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like we typically think we have ourselves all figured out. No. And what you find is people that are the best communicators are typically people that, again, have gone down that dark, deep rabbit hole of self-reflection. They're very aware of where they are inadequate in their skill of communication or as human beings. And you know what? They're okay with that. They don't try to hide it or mask it. They own it. And those people people are typically the best coaches and the most relatable. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on, but yeah. but those things are huge. And so the, so the book is kind of an intro to all that, and then the course dies deeper. On, uh, just a couple of things, Brett. Uh, but on 
um, when you're talking about that sort of self-awareness, are you um, a fan of or use any sort of uh, personality profiling um, or character strength type of um, stuff, even for like encouraging people to to take any of those um, and, and or have you done yourself or used anything like that um, for event, for sure, yeah, and, and that's a, and that's actually chapter one of the book too. Is I review, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it's eight different psychometric assessments. Everything from Myers Briggs to Insight Discovery, Hogan Strength Finders, uh, the DISC assessment. I go through all of those. Um, and, and I say within the book, like, Hey, there's an inherent, there's great parts about some of these, but they all have their flaws. I mean, some of which have the accuracy of, you know, basically something between a heart rate monitor and a horoscope, you know, some of them are, are horrible in regards to forced choice questioning, how they kind of are overly general. But I think, I think as a whole, and so I'm not going to get into favorites just yeah. because Okay. Again, it's, it's kind of, it, it's tough. Again, it, it depends on the situation. It depends on the organization. It depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Um, and again, there's, there's just for the sake of this podcast, there's, there's too much to cover on each of them yeah. uh, out of respect to your time. Yeah, But, but I do you know, think that going through, sorry. Sorry. So like as, as an overall, like if, if there's, if people do find if valuable. tools that, yeah, that help you gain some more self-awareness around some of your, uh, personality for sure right? yeah as, as much as as much yeah. as much as they're criticized yeah they're tremendously valuable because they give you an idea of what questions you should be asking yourself or where you should dive deeper the key is is a lot of people answer the questions from the perspective of their ideal self <laughs> right like yeah, yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. The, and that's that's the issue and so when people start answering the questions based on how they'd like to act or like to respond then they're screwed. Pardon my language, but it's just mm-hmm. the truth. And so, um, but I think I think anything you can do to kind of take yourself down that path is valuable. I mean, I it, we live in such a funny world, right, guys? Where like people will be like, "Oh, all psychometric evaluations are crap and they're worthless." Sure, like many of them are can produce false positives, but the point is, is it's just a tool. Just do it yeah. to get the conversation started, and then yeah. what I provide is kind of a three-stage framework that people can go through if they really want to kind of dive more deeply into that uh, within the book and the course. But yeah, I think they're valuable. Yeah, you've, you've already talked about things like, I can't remember what it was at the beginning, so it's about some stuff, something being, things not being black and white in a, a certain scenario. And it's like, we get a similar sort of thing sometimes in um, with, with the train, like, oh no, you, you can't do handstands like this. You have to do it like that or, you know, you can't ever do kick up like hands with like kicking up to a wall compared to like walking up a wall and people being like, are oh, one's right or wrong rather than going actually like these things are their tools that um, nothing's black and white, like they're tools and you, you can use certain tools at the right time for the right job in the right sort of scenario. Um, and that's just like that, that spreads across all things. It's just a good um value for for taking into all aspects of us of us training work life um the other thing i wanted to just touch on quickly was it was just really interesting as you so i used to play um pro rugby um don't we call it in america rugby, rugby. rugby sevens is big but you know i don't think you're excited it's not so but rugby in um 
and so being in the team squad, as you were talking through some of those archetypes, I didn't do it so much when you when you went through them at the UKCA talk, but as we were just doing it then, like people that I used to play with, like yeah. sprung to mind, um, and it was sort of sometimes would make me sort of giggle, you know, thinking. And then what I started to think about was how um, how certain coaches would get, you know, it, like you, you could have a guy that like just didn't didn't work with the coach. And, the, and, as, and I've done and I've coached in team sports and stuff as well. And you sort of, you think that the you automatically go to like, oh, it's them that's got the problem rather than looking back <laughs> and saying, okay, actually, maybe it's me that's not communicating effectively. So like this, these other guys, you know, because it might be like all the other guys like, love how you coach them, but there's this one person that, that doesn't. And actually, rather than all of those are quite, maybe their personality types are similar to yours and therefore you, the way you communicate syncs in with them. Um, but it's, it's, that's that interesting. I remember like I've, I've done, I've actually taught in school for a, for, for a year. And I remember one of a mentor that was a, a, like a teaching mentor, um, in a secondary school for, for me, I guess that's state school in America. Um, and they said like, and it's, it's probably, maybe it's a false thing. I don't know if interesting your take on it, that they were like, you've got, you got 30 kids in front of you, but they ain't all going to like you. So yeah they were a bit like deal with that some of them aren't going to like you um but now i'm sort of questioning that going well actually maybe you have to try and you know it, someone liking you or not doesn't relevant to whether they can um you certainly yeah. buy in and, and coach them but it's like how you actually i was going to ask you the same question right like i've had a couple generally over the years like i've done a lot of coaching since i was young and you get good at sort of adapting to different people and building rapport quite quickly i used to be a scuba diving instructor so you have to get people on board quite quickly because you're about to put their life in your hands but there's been a few people similar to what jacko was saying over the years we just no matter what you do no matter <laughs> how like you try it. you can't get that person on side like what what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, listen, there's, and again, it's it's a critical, not to keep going back to it, but it's a critical part of what I talk, I, I call the coaching compass in my book, like, you know, to connect with people and to be able to bridge that gap, you've got to, you've got to understand a couple things, right? The science of relationships, the components of trust, like what goes into that, you've got to understand yourself, but also there's the time component. There are some people that like, this stuff's not going to happen on your time. There's athletes that we've all worked with that you can do everything until you're blue in the face until that athlete, until it's been a reality to them, whether they saw they had a bad season or, you know, they, they've re-injured themselves or something else, or, you know, somebody's beat them in, in a competition for, you know, a, a position, they're not going to listen. And that's just a maturation thing. I mean, the human brain, the conscious part, you know, of our brain or the part that really is the seat of consciousness, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until 25 years of age. So when we, when we kind of, you know, complain that, oh, this guy doesn't get it, this guy doesn't, well, sometimes there's a physiological reason for that. Like we're asking them to use reason and critical thinking and decision-making when a part, that part of their brain isn't even fully developed around that time, until that time. So there's research in organizational psychology and behavior that talks about influence tactics. And this is peer-reviewed, you know, like true literature that, uh, that, that looks at kind of what I talked about at the UKSCA that there, there's 10 to 11 influence tactics that you can use across different spectrums to be able to reach people more effectively. Some of those deal with rational persuasion and, and educating people. Some of those are, are pressure tactics and things that kind of put them into a corner and see if they respond. Some of them are, are softer tactics, like 
uh, things that would uh, tie into self-determination theory in terms of giving them some autonomy and, and, and bringing them into the process. But there's so many different tactics and, and along with the archetypes, it's, it's a whole thing that we discuss in the course as well. Cause the book, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if I put everything I wanted to in that book, that book would have been 500 pages and nobody would have read it. Um, so a lot of, a, a lot of the, the, the deeper science around influence tactics and archetypes is covered in the online course, but it's fascinating because it goes into the same principles that we use to program workouts or training sessions, mm. you know, like, but nobody thinks about periodizing communication tactics. Nobody thinks about, Hey, with this person, or when I see this kind of behavior, I need to generally lean upon this kind of influence tactic or a combination of, of rational persuasion and legitimating tactic, you know, all these different things. And, and that's really what I'm trying to help people with now is saying, Hey, you already understand periodization and strategy. Are you employing it day to day on the floor? You know, do you know what? And then, like I said, gentlemen, like there are some people that no matter what you do, it's just going to, it's going to be on their time, right? Yeah. They've got to, they've got to be receptive to the message they've got to be in a place in their life where it means something. And I, listen, I wrote the book on it literally. And there's guys that I've worked with that, you know, we haven't gelled, but three years later they came back and we clicked fine, you know, and, and they were just like, Hey, at the time I didn't get it. Now I do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing in the world that can speed that process up. Like the power's in their hands to trust you. We're not trying to trick them. I had a gentleman and it's not worth going into much, but, I had a gentleman over here who's an academic that tried stating that my book was a treatise into like tricking people to trust you. And I, you know, the guy probably read the first two pages, but you know, the reality is, is you couldn't trick somebody to trust you long-term if you tried, you know, sure. A salesman could probably do that. Like, but that's short term, everybody knows if they're being tricked after a while, they'll catch on to that. Mm-hmm. And my point with that is real, real trust, real buy-in, real relationships cannot be faked. It's got to be on the athlete's time as well. My friend Roy Sugarman says it best. You are only an expert once the athlete invites you into their life. And without that happening, nothing you say is going to hit home in the way you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, one thing Brett, I was just going to ask, because there'll be a lot of people that listen that are not necessarily working in coaching, but are in businesses and corporations. We're talking about people skills at the end of the day. Um, and and your, your, uh, the field in which you're, you're specializing in, the field of the application is very much in, in sport. But if someone wanted to read your book and, and do the course, which I want you to talk about in a second, um, but they're not in a, in a sort of a sports environment, I'm sure there's still value in it for them as well, whether they can apply these principles with people in the boardroom, not necessarily just in a weight room. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's been the case. What we've seen is, you know, we have we have lawyers, doctors, dentists, school counselors, um, you know, college professors, people like that in the course, and it's it's created some really great discussion. But yeah, I mean, listen, I just read a book. Um, I think it was written by the Marriott CEO, the CEO of Marriott Hotels. And I don't own a hotel chain, but I can apply those things, right? So even though I use the terms coaching and strength and conditioning, that can be managing clients, patients, employees, any of those things. And and I'm I'm really appreciative that you brought that up because it was a question I received a lot early on. And I guess, gentlemen, it's just nothing I thought about. Like I read books from, I've read books from military people and I've never just thought, Oh, this must only apply to military. Mm. Like I always kind of take lessons and apply them. But when I get people that are like, Hey, I'm a basketball coach. 
does your book apply? I'm like, do you work with people? He's like, yeah. I'm like, then it applies. Then it's so if it works yeah. with pe- if you work with people, just sub, sub that in. I mean, you know, it's tough because you can't write a book and say, hey, you know, whether you're dealing with coaches, athletes, clients, patients, you know, every page would be 400 different, you know, different nouns. And so, yeah, for sure. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. But I think even I'd almost go to say like, if you are a person living on the planet, unless you live in isolation, if you are living in isolation, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Therefore you are going to no. communicate with people. And um, I'm a big, you know, I, I, we love training. We love calisthenics. We've talked about sport and, and, and strength and conditioning, but I also love like talking about life and actually being a better communicator is only going to enhance your life and your relationship. So I've got a little um, boy, um, Brett is 18 months old. And, and, um, I said to, I've spoken to Jacko about it and to my wife and said, one of the, the biggest skills or most important skills that I think I can and help him with as he's grown up is, is self-awareness and his ability to communicate. And it, that is, um, I think one of those things that I, I take massive, um, joy in being able to speak to people like yourself and learn from you because that's only going to help me to do that for him and to help our own business and our, what we're doing with athletes and stuff as well. So, so you're yeah. going to buy a little Jack. Um, I'm going to, well, Jack, Jack his book. Jack's already read the Harry read. Potter, <laughs> um, two volumes of Harry Potter. Yeah, well, and, and you're the next one we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, it, and it's spot. I mean, listen, like more successful interventions always start with more successful interactions. And, and the nice thing about this stuff is it's, it's timeless. Like, when are we going to live in a society that doesn't need to know how to communicate? Sure, you can argue more of it may be done online. You're still going to need to know social mores. You're still going to need to know how to interact. You're still going to know how to ask questions. Like, it, it's a timeless thing. But like, sadly, it's a skill. Correct, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a skill that's withering away and atrophying in people, is it not? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, and so. Uh, I mean, I can even tell when, you know, one of the things that got me on this podcast was the way you guys interacted, you know, the authenticity of it, how well organized you guys were with the communication, how, how, uh, just authentic, you know, you'd be, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to hear that. Like I'll get reached out to, you know, weekly and people will be like, Hey bro, want to jump on the cast? And I'm like, what (laughs) are you asking? Like, you know what I mean? And like, or somebody will be like, Hey dude, have a podcast would be super grateful if you do this. And like, it's like, man, like, I don't even know you. And you're already asking, like, can we start a conversation? And so uh, it's just something that's atrophying. We're going to need it. It's applicable to everybody. Um, you know, there's no agenda behind it. I mean, there's the reason I call the company that I started art of coaching is, is for the reason you guys mentioned, because it, it were it's, it's applicable to me. If you're a, if you're a CEO, if you're, a leader, if you're an actual coach, if you're a teacher, no matter what you're doing, you're a coach. If you interact with somebody, you're guiding them, you're teaching them, you're a coach. So mm-hmm. I want this information to be for everybody. When somebody asks me to find the art of coaching, I say it's, you know, it's relatively simple and this is a working definition, right? So I reserve yeah. the right to change it <laughs> in a few <laughs> years, but to me, it's the ability it's the ability to identify, analyze, and adapt to the variables that impact human performance. And communication is one of those things. You know, like, uh, it's one of the biggest things that can impact human performance. I mean, you have research out there that talks about Olympians who said that they feel like their performance was altered because of conflict within their coaching camp and their teams. You know, now that's, that's serious stuff. These are gold medalists. These are people that even if they won you know, whether they won or lost, they said that some aspect of their performance they felt like was hampered by conflict within their camp. And that's communication, you know? And so the ability to identify, analyze, and adapt to variables that can impact human performance, 
it's broad and specific at the same time. Human performance can be corporate leadership, management, sport coaching, strength and conditioning, physical therapy, um, you know, and then identifying, analyzing, and adapting speaks to, okay, can I recognize it? Can I look deeper into it, whether it's a problem or it's myself, self-reflection, you know, psychology, what have you, and then can I adapt to it? If you can't do those things, then, you know, you probably don't understand the art of coaching and, and you need to dive deeper. Yeah, I saw a paper came out on the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research about the the perceived psychological responsibilities of a strength and conditioning coach. And they, they'd done a survey and it said over half, 61% of the respondents reported that they needed additional psychology-orientated responsibilities. It talks about softer skills, mentoring, communicating with coaches, sharing. The one that just came out with Paul, it was Paul Comfort and a couple yeah. other folks. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just reading that. And, and that's the interesting thing, right? Like, because I had somebody that told me that me writing this book was out of my scope of practice. And I said, now time out, I'm not diagnosing anybody. And like, you know, I, I make that uh, statement repetitively in the book. Like, I'm not, I'm not telling people to take medication. I'm not telling people that they, they have this issue, that issue, but you're telling me that strength and conditioning coaches don't have to deal with psychological aspects. I go, brother, you must not coach much. You know, I don't think <laughs> yeah. you find one person you know, I don't, I don't think you'd find one person in the world that actually interacts with athletes regularly and at a high level that will tell you part of their job is not, you know, uh, uh, psychological in nature. Absolutely. You could argue that's the number one thing that transfers from mm. what we do. Yeah. And it's a really interesting position that you are in a strength and conditioning coach because you do bridge that close relationship with the athletes and then the head coach um, positions. And I do, I've, my, my experience is very much at times feeling like a middleman and a mediator between those two things. Um, Brett, tell us a little bit about the course that you've got coming up. So if people want to jump on, and, and obviously the book is a starting point, but as you said, there's so much information that you, the more depth to it, um, you're running a, a course that people can can become part of and they can start to develop these skills. Just, just tell us a little bit about what it is and how people get involved. Yeah. So uh, the course is, it's, it's, uh, it's a full on like uh, five week course. Um, now like it's comprised of videos, manuals, tutorials, a whole thing, professionally produced videos. I think it's about 10 hour videos in general, but it's, it's a follow-up to the book. Essentially it's a, it's a deeper dive that if people have read conscious coaching, so you don't have to have read conscious coaching prior to taking it. But if you've read it and you want to dive deeper into the science and the details and everything like that, uh, yeah, it's a full-on coach development course. So they can find it at artofcoaching.com, not the art of coaching, but artofcoaching.com. And, uh, you know, there's an exam. Like I said, it comes with a whole printout of all the archetypes. Um, it comes with a whole printout of the communication tactics we referenced here. And it just goes into a deeper dive of, of many of the things that we are discussed. So we do an enrollment uh, twice a year. And, you know, once they enroll, they have lifetime access to it, but the enrollment's only three days. So October 17th through the 19th of this year, it'll be open. Otherwise it won't open again until spring of next year. Um, and that's just because we keep it highly interactive. Um, we want to be able to manage everybody's experience. If somebody experiences flaws or issues, which thankfully we haven't had yet, we just want to, it'd be silly to have a course on interpersonal communication and then have horrible interpersonal communication. <laughs> well, no, um, yeah, 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 definitely. And so, yeah, it's just, it's for people that want to dive deeper. It also provides what's been nice is from a staff development standpoint. I mean, we provide manuals that we call field guides, which people can print off and there's 10 to 20 different activities that they can take and drills that they can run themselves and their coaches through to make sure they've got a really thorough understanding of the topic from an applied standpoint as opposed to, you know how it is. So many times people just watch videos or presentations and they're like, Oh, 
I'm done. I get it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're not done until you apply it. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's a full scale coaching development course. Um, October 17th to the 19th is when enrollment starts. Amazing. Great. And um, so we will, um, we will put the links into uh, to the website. So if you don't have to worry about anyone making sure they're missing spelling or anything. Um, and also uh, Tim wants to buy a copy of the book, obviously for, for young Jack, and we'll put a link in the show. Oh, notes. Yeah, I appreciate we'll, that. We'll put a Thank link in the, in the show notes for, uh, for the book for you've mentioned a number of times. So whether people um, want to jump in uh, on either or both of those two things, um, I think just from the last point for me and then Jacko's just wrap this up is that um, I think for some any success that I've had over the years and what, what's made me a better practitioner and a better coach and being able to operate at a higher level in some fairly difficult environments at times is communication skills. And it's the one thing I probably... Um, would stress over anything else once you've got your base level foundations and i do some some training off personal trainers and they're like what should i do next i'm like go and learn about people go and learn about building rapport and communication and how we macro splits and breakdowns that's all good stuff that you need to know but if unless you can get people on board it is irrelevant yeah and you, you don't get changed so. unless i missed the days when this was taught at school or at, I don't think at university at that's i mean yeah. but it isn't though. i think we all did just you just sort of you find your way you find yeah you yeah. find your way and you may and that and i think a lot of the time it comes down to people who you end up interacting with mm. and you pick up and if you're not if you're fortunate enough to be around really good communicators you'll pick up yeah. things but as you're not then and, and that's just comes down to it. chance doesn't yeah. it yeah um i think just just before we close it off brett you were saying that um the before the seventh so it goes uh, the course goes um live to sign up on the 17th but if uh, people want to ha- get a bit of a sneak peek at um what it's about they can see some of the they can get a bit of an insight into into the course beforehand is that correct absolutely yeah i mean literally right now if they go to artofcoaching.com they'll be able to download a free 12 minute sample of the course uh specifically about the communication tactics so it gives them an idea uh, of, of what's presented um it'll show them the video quality and everything like that so that they know mm-hmm. that it's not you know, some guy in his yeah. living room with a microphone. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, like I said, they get six or seven different bonuses once the course actually opens and, and they enroll. Uh, t- and like most people, we got a lot of great feedback early on. People wanted printable notes, manuals, workbooks. So like all that's provided. But yeah, you can see a 12-minute video at artofcoaching.com right now if you want to check it out. Amazing. So people, it is free. So they've got absolutely nothing to lose. So yeah, it's worth probably going over and checking that out. Um, thank you, uh, Brett, for taking the time to, to come on the podcast. Um, I'm absolutely, um, I think, I'm energized um, by all of it and in, in, encouraged around um, our own, right back to the beginning, we talk about strength, but then also uh, what we can use in terms of our community communication and start to almost challenge ourselves to to do that better in all aspects um, of our life for sure. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and spending the time with us. Um, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you on. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. So until next week, class dismissed. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this week's uh, School of Card Science podcast playground session. If you have enjoyed it, and we would really appreciate it if you would head over to iTunes or whatever platform you're enjoying this on and give us a five-star review. We realize there is one to four, but really it's only about the five stars. Mm -hmm. And that helps people to find us and we get to share this information with others. We hopefully can help them to redefine their impossible. Yeah, it's totally not about just trying to help our build us some confidence. (laughs) No, (laughs) we're not at all insecure. 
So until next week, class dismissed. <laughs>